Bible reading is taken from Daniel this morning, and it's the first chapter, chapter that we'll be reading. And you can find it um, on page 892 in the, uh, in the Bibles, the church Bibles here. And you can also follow it on the screen. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God, in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. This way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then, compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food 
and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, saints. It's really uh, good, to, good to see you all again. And thank you, Carol, for uh, navigating all of those names for us. Uh, so as we uh, reflect on this, uh, this passage together, I just encourage you, do keep your Bibles open. Uh, if it would help you, have those, uh, those notes to follow along with. And let, let me pray for us as we uh, look at Daniel 1 together. Father God, we thank you for your words. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would take hold of these ancient words uh, and make this story that took place two and a half thousand years ago relevant and real to us here and now today. Lord, please teach us what it means to faithfully follow you when we're surrounded by people who do not call Jesus Christ, Lord. And we ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we uh, started a, a new series of sermons which we're calling Life in Exile, looking at how we can faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of a culture that, if it isn't quite hostile to our faith, is at best pretty apathetic or simply just at odds in some really fundamental ways. We, we started by looking at the opening couple of chapters of Peter, uh, uh, Peter's first letter, in which he addresses his readers, so that's you and me, as exiles, foreigners, strangers in the world. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking uh, at a few stories from the book of Daniel. Uh, I'd love to go through the whole thing, but we just don't have the, have the time. But we're going to be looking at these stories from the book of Daniel to see what wisdom we can glean from his and his friends' experience of life in exile. And that's not just simply so that we can kind of say, well, let's just do what Daniel did. It's not quite as simple as that. But rather, I just want to encourage us to allow the story of Daniel to shape our imaginations about the life of faith and what it might look like here and now. And so let's just start with a brief look at the historical background. So this is the first couple of verses uh, of chapter 1. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So the the situation is this. The northern kingdom of Israel, uh, so just rewind a little bit further, Israel uh, had been uh, a united kingdom and then uh, After the reign of King Solomon, it got split apart into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, centered upon the city of Samaria, had already, by the point of this story, been long destroyed and taken into exile by the Assyrian army. And now we're over a century later, and the next big world superpower, which is the Babylonian Empire, where they come and they finish off the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Babylonians not only destroy Judah militarily, but they utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the houses, they destroyed the city walls, and then they forcefully relocated the brightest and best of the city's citizens uh, over to Babylon, where they were trained to be part of the Babylonian civil service. And so Daniel and his friends are part of that group. And so the Babylonian goal with this exile was to thoroughly assimilate their conquests into the service of the empire. And yet there's a very important detail that we also need to see here. That the exile wasn't an accident. Verse 2 says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim and Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Why? Well, the answer uh, we get from Jeremiah chapter 53. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. So in other words, the the exile was the the judgment of God on his people for their rebellion against him. And this wasn't just a a kind of uh, an instantaneous annoyance. This had been going on for centuries. And God kept sending prophets and messengers and saying, turn back to me, come back. And again and again and again, they ignored those warnings. And in the end, enough was enough. And God gave them over to their self-destructive desires. And the result was exile. And that's why Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. So Daniel and his friends brought to Babylon to be re-educated. And if you think that sounds a little sinister, like something that would go on in North Korea, well, there's a reason for that. It's because it is the same thing that goes on in North Korea. Nebuchadnezzar may well have been the the head of a ruthless military machine, but he wasn't an idiot. He knew that a far more effective strategy for ruling his vast empire wasn't total oppression, but changing people. Making his conquered subjects into people who walked Babylonian, who talked Babylonian, who thought Babylonian, who ate Babylonian food, who were, to all intents and purposes, Babylonian. 
And Nebuchadnezzar's goal was that after a three-year immersion course in Babylonian language and literature, these young men would no longer be foreigners, but insiders. And step one in the re-education process, give these foreigners new Babylonian names. So, Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, and Azariah becomes Abednego. Oh, what's wrong with that? I mean, some people, sometimes uh, people, uh, I know of people who have come over from, uh, from China or Hong Kong who have got uh, names that is hard for us uh, over in this country to pronounce, and so they take on British names. Is that what's going on here? No. There's a more sinister side to it. In the first place, these names are given, they're not chosen. Daniel and his friends don't say, oh, going to go by Mishael now. No, 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 these are names that are imposed on them, whether they like it or not. Uh, We're not told whether Daniel and his friends raised any objections, but the likelihood is they just didn't have any say in the matter. In fact, it was probably much the same way as a prisoner receives a prison number. This is who you are now. You belong to us. This is your name. But in the second place, these new names are also about obliterating a captive's people's cultural identity. Because you see, all those names mean something. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant the Lord shows grace. Azariah's name meant the Lord helps Mishael's, who is like God. So the Babylonians weren't just trying to erase any traces of Jewish culture. They were trying to erase any traces of the Jewish God. And look what they changed them to. Belteshazzar. May Bel, a Babylonian god, protect his life. Shadrach, command of Aku, another Babylonian god, their moon god. Abednego. Servant of Nebu, and that's not a planet in Star Wars. Um, Meshach, who is like Aku. The giving of these new names wasn't any benign act intended to help these foreigners settle in more easily in Babylon. The giving of these names was meant to completely rewrite their stories. And yet what I find interesting is that Daniel and his friends don't seem to resist. Like I said, I don't think they've got much choice. But isn't it telling? What's the name of this book? Not Belteshazzar. It's almost as if Daniel and his friends are saying, you can call me whatever you like. You can call me Susan if you like. I know who I am. Babylon could change their names, but not their identities. These four boys knew who they were. Their sense of identity in God wasn't skin deep. It wasn't in name only. It was deeply rooted in the core of their being. And this then, I suggest, is the first lesson that we today can learn about life in exile. That we need to know who we are in Christ 
not just on a surface level, but in the depths of our being. We need to strain our ears to hear who God says that we are. And that means we need to know who to listen to. Because to be sold out for Jesus in a culture that doesn't acknowledge him as Lord mean that we're likely to be called names too. Some will sneer at us that faith is a crutch for the weak. You're weak if you believe. Some will sneer at us that faith is for the stupid. It's because you're not intelligent enough to believe the science. And that's why you cling on to faith. Some will call us bigots for holding to a a biblical understanding of marriage as a lifelong loving union of one man and one woman. Back in the 18th century when uh, the uh, Methodist revival was breaking out uh, and uh, men and women were becoming just inflamed with love for God. Some, uh, as often happens, some uh, higher-ups in the establishment of the church didn't particularly take it very well and called them enthusiasts. And that wasn't meant to be a compliment. It was basically a way of saying, nut job. So whose voice will you listen to? Who will you look to for your sense of identity? Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. They're training for the Babylonian bureaucracy. They have Babylonian names. They wear Babylonian clothes. They read Babylonian books. These men are deeply embedded in the fabric of the Babylonian empire, albeit against their will. And yet they know deep down, I'm not a Babylonian. They are in Babylon but they aren't of Babylon. And we see this most clearly in verses 8 and following. So their ability to accommodate to the culture while remaining faithful to God can only go so far. There are limits. They have red lines which they are not prepared to cross because they believe crossing them will mean straying from God. They have an attitude that's willing to say, this far and no further. And so life in exile means choosing conviction over compromise. Look with me at verse 8. Daniel resolved himself not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. His outward action came from a deep inner belief in what is right and what is wrong. Uh, The biblical scholar Tremper Longman writes this. He says, Daniel endured much cultural assimilation, yet he knew where it was appropriate for him to draw the line of distinction. You see, a line has to be drawn, and he goes on, Longman says this. He says, Christians will find themselves at odds with the values and beliefs of the broader culture just by virtue of their ultimate allegiance to a God who is bigger than themselves. So we're not actually told in the story why Daniel refused to eat the royal food and wine. 
perhaps it wouldn't have been kosher, almost certainly it wouldn't, so uh, that he might have been presented with meat like pork or shellfish or other meat with the blood in it, which uh, Jews wouldn't have, were, were forbidden to eat. Perhaps it was because uh, the food came from the king, and so sharing the meal suggested a kind of fellowship with the king. We just don't know. Maybe it was because the food would have been offered to a pagan deity, a pagan god, before it was eaten. In the, you know, the way that uh, many, many, many people kind of say grace before a meal, maybe it was because you know, they prayed, well, thank you, Aku, for bringing us this wonderful food. Thank you, Nebu, for bringing us this wonderful food. Maybe that was the reason. We don't know. But the clue, I think, lies in that little word, defile. Daniel felt that to eat and drink the royal food would compromise his loyalty to God and his identity among the people of God who were called to be holy, that is set apart for him. So whatever Daniel's motivation, he clearly felt that eating the king's food would have been a failure to honor God as his one and only ultimate love and loyalty. Uh, So, just before we go any further with this, because I just want to draw it out a little bit more, I also just want to point out that Daniel isn't just turning down any old food. Whose food is this? This is the king's food. In other words, he's turning down a Michelin star banquet. He's not turning down McDonald's. He's turning down food from Le Manoir au Quatre Saisons. And what's more, he's an exile. So food isn't going to be plentiful in abundance, is it? And he's turning them both down. He's turning down a feast that would make the mouths of all of us in this room salivate. And so I want you to see that Daniel's conviction led him to say no to something that by the world's standards looks incredible. So I wonder, if if Satan offered you a Ferrari as a company car, would you take it? That's the kind of dilemma that Daniel is facing here. And so what do you think it means for Daniel to turn it down? It means that he thinks that his allegiance, his loyalty to God is even more valuable than the Michelin star food. He thinks that God plus a vegetable-only diet is better than a Michelin star diet minus God. Daniel knows how much God is worth, and he's not willing to jeopardize his relationship with God for the sake of anything, not even the finest food in the world. Do you know God that way? Is a close walk with him more valuable than the greatest riches the world could offer you? 
If we're to flourish in exile, we have to know by first-hand experience how precious God is. And so the next thing I want to draw your attention to is the manner of Daniel and uh, his friends' protest. So Daniel resolves not to devile himself with royal food and wine, but notice how he goes about it. He doesn't angrily throw the pork chops back in the server's face. No, he asks for permission and trusts God for the rest. I think there's a lot we can learn from that response. He doesn't simply shrug his shoulders and say, nothing I can do about it, might as well have these pork chops. Oh, the crackling's great, fantastic. He doesn't say, well, house always wins, what can I do? No, Daniel does resist, but he does so respectfully and faithfully. He doesn't expect those who aren't God's people to follow God's way of life. Rather, as one of God's people, he seeks to live out God's way of life before the watching world. And frankly, we shouldn't expect Christian behavior of non-Christians. Rather, it's incumbent upon us as Christians to live Christianly. One of the mistakes we often make is to think that we can legislate for Christian morality. Well, we can't. Instead, our role as God's people is to witness to a different way of being in the world. Uh, The great Swiss theologian of the last century, Karl Barth, said that the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of promise. In other words, what he's saying, God's people are meant to be a community of contrast. They're meant to show up, the highlight, highlight the differences. They say, look, here's one way of living, and here's our way of living. Our job isn't to bully people into better morals. Our job is to model kingdom living in such a way that it looks attractive. Daniel's approach in this story isn't to march up to King Nebuchadnezzar, wagging his finger and calling him to repent. Now, there's a time and a place for that. John the Baptist shows us. Jonah shows us. But that's not what Daniel does here. Daniel's approach is much quieter. He simply refuses to be drawn in. He says in his heart, that's fine for everyone else, but it's not fine for me. I'm different because I belong to God. I have a different story. I have a different set of values. They might be able to eat this, I can't eat this. Daniel models a beautiful kind of resistance, which is simply living in the world an alternative way of life. It's about being willing to be different, not just for the sake of being different, but different because we belong to God. To be known as people who don't worship idols, who don't sleep around, who don't abort babies, who don't euthanize their old folks. Daniel respectfully asks the chief official for permission not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and then he trusts God to make it possible. And notice how we're told in verse 9, God caused the official to show favor 
and compassion to Daniel. I love that. Uh, So my missionary hero, Hudson Taylor, discovered that we can move man through God by by prayer alone. God's able to touch hearts if we put in the prayer. Notice also that the trust that Daniel has is in God. If he refuses to eat the, the food assigned to him and eats only vegetables instead, he trusts that he's not going to look any the worse for it. In other words, he trusts that God is more than able to make up for the m- nutrition that he's going to miss from having the meat. I say, yes, there is, a, there is some giving up here. But Daniel believes that anything he gives up for God, God is more than able to compensate for. And he's not disappointed, is he? Is he? And so what wisdom can we 21st century exiles glean from Daniel's experience? Well, I just want to suggest five things. In the first place, I think it shows us that it's not only possible to be in the world, it is possible to be in the world, but not of the world. Daniel and his friends are not cloistered away from the world, uh, free from its contamination. That's simply not possible as exiles. But rather, Daniel and his friends model engagement with the world while retaining their sense of identity as the people of God. And what's more, we see that this sense of identity is more than skin deep. Because Babylon can change their names, and yet they still know exactly who they are in God. And there's a challenge here, I think, to cultivate a real depth of faith whose roots are firm even when there's a hurricane blowing outside. And secondly, I think this story shows us the absolute importance of growing in Christian wisdom. It takes huge wisdom to know the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. Daniel understood that exiles walk a fine line. There are times when we can adapt to the context around us, times when we can participate in in its activities without compromising our identity as God's people. There are other times when to adapt to the context, to participate in what it's doing, is going to compromise our identity as God's people. And while it's necessary to communicate the gospel afresh in each new generation, it has to be the same gospel. It's the communication that's afresh, not the gospel. We don't change the message. We change how we deliver the message, how we communicate it. And if we're going to do that, we have to know the gospel inside out. And third, this story highlights the role of courage in the Christian life. To live as faithful exiles in a world that doesn't share our faith or values will, be, will mean being willing to stand out from the crowd. It will involve us saying no, not only to things that everybody else thinks are fine, but also saying no to things that everybody else thinks are perfectly wonderful, like Michelin star food. Christian exiles not only need to have convictions, they need to have the conviction to stick by those 
amid enormous pressure to conform. And we'll only be able to do that as we set God apart as holy in our hearts. In order to say no to the things that everyone else thinks are so good, we will have to know, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that he is our highest good. Fourth, I think this story teaches us how we can resist the imperialism of the world. Something I've called a a beautiful resistance. How we resist, I want to suggest, is is as important as why we resist. So in Matthew 10, for instance, Jesus calls his followers sheep among wolves. And he goes on to advise them to be as wise as snakes and as pure as doves. And it seems to me that that is exactly what Daniel exemplifies in this story. He's wise to the dangers of compromise and the risks of defiance. But he's also pure about the way he goes about it. Not fighting fire with fire, but respectfully asking permission to pursue a different path and demonstrate the rightness of it. How can we likewise say no to compromising our convictions, but in such a way that doesn't just communicate judgment and contempt? It's a real challenge. Fifth, and and this isn't explicitly mentioned in the story, but I do think it's there under the surface. How do we dare to be Daniels? How do we become the kinds of people who know who they are in Christ, who are growing in practical wisdom for godly living, who have the courage of their convictions, and who are able to resist beautifully by modeling a new and different way of living in the world? How do we become those kind of people? Uh, What John Tyson explains, he says this, he says, we have to exercise counterformative practices that shape our culture rather than allowing cultural norms to sculpt us. A creative minority is committed to a series of alternative cultural practices that offset the molding forces of culture. So in other words, what he's saying is that if you've got these influences here that are shaping you, you need to cultivate another set of practices, of habits, of spiritual disciplines that will shape you in the way of Jesus. We have to intentionally allow ourselves to be shaped by God's story. How are you allowing yourself to be shaped by God's story? And so I just want to finish by sharing with you some searing words uh, that I came across in an article uh, in The Spectator. I came across these a a few months ago, and they've just been uh, resonating with me. So the author, uh, a guy called Ben Sixsmith, um, and he's basically warning against what he calls, with a twist of Christianity, versions of the faith. Um, What he means by that, basically, those who seem to believe that the job of the church is simply to to blend into culture one way or another. He concludes this. I'm not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, 
I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That's not a Christian writing those words. And so today I'm asking whether you are willing to be different because you belong to Jesus. G.K. Chesterton once said, we do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Anyone else want to say amen to that? Amen. And so will you commit to being such a church? It won't be easy. We'll have to die to the world's opinion polls. We'll have to learn to live for an audience of one. We'll have to learn to obey God even when it isn't popular, when it pits us against our culture. We'll have to commit ourselves to practices that will root us in our true identity as the people of God. Things like gathering in small groups during the week, to open God's word together, to pray together, to encourage one another together. We'll have to renounce super, superficial spirituality and we'll have to settle for nothing less than a sold-out, heart-level knowledge of God in our everyday lives. Christopher Wright, a theologian of mission, says this. He says, the mission of God's people is to be God's people in the world. then we need to reflect on that. If we want to have a wide impact on our world, we need to cultivate a deep spirituality rooted in who we are in Christ as God's people. And then we've got to seek the courage that only God can give us to actually live out that identity in our everyday lives, fearlessly standing up for what we know to be true amid a culture that tells a different story. God wants us to be in the world in order to be for the world. But we can't be for the world if we're indistinguishable from the world. The greatest gift that we as the people of God can give the world is to be the people of God. To be people who know God, who love God, and who show and tell that there is a better way of living as God's friends. So my question to us this morning is, are you up for that? I just uh, in a moment we we're, we're going to take um, some time just to uh, to, to confess our, our, our failings to be God's holy people. But I suggest we just take a moment, just in quiet, just to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to highlight anything uh, that He's putting on our hearts, and just to allow ourselves to respond to those promptings.
So if there's anything that uh, God is particularly speaking to you that you'd appreciate prayer for, we, we love to pray with you. Uh, our prayer ministry team will be available in the prayer chapel, especially uh, so after, uh, in a few moments' time, we're going to share communion together. Uh, and after, after we share communion, the prayer chapel will be open. The prayer ministry team will be there. If you'd appreciate a chance to pray with someone, and especially just mindful that there may be some of us here this morning who are feeling that rub, that tension, that we just don't know. Where is the red line? Uh, it feels like I might be getting close to it in one area of my life, and I need wisdom to know, how do I do this? Maybe for some of us, the challenge is, how do I resist beautifully? I know I've got to, but how do I do it in a way that honors God? And so if there's, if there's something that the Lord is speaking to you this morning, I'd encourage you uh, just to, to do business with him whilst it's fresh. And if it would help to pray with someone, we would love to help you in that. So let's take a moment now to confess the ways in which we've failed to be God's faithful people. Father, we've allowed our hearts, our minds, and our desires to be shaped too much by the world around us, rather than by your word and by your gospel of grace. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We've chosen compromise over conviction. We've allowed our fear of standing out from the crowd to stop us from standing up courageously for you. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We've lost sight of who we are and whose we are. And we've blended too easily into the world around us. When you call us to be a community of contrast, when you've called us to live in the world as your people, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And so, God, we thank you for your promise that when we come to you in sorrow for our sins, openly admitting our mistakes and seeking your help to live a new life, that you promise not only to forgive us, but to empower us through your Holy Spirit to change. Lord, you hear the confession, not just of our lips, but of our hearts. And so we receive your forgiveness afresh now, bought through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Well, as we uh, move towards a time of sharing bread and wine together in remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection, we're going to sing. So if you're able,